0: Pleasure to have you, Michael. You and I actually know each other from the building industry here in Austin, Texas. I'm a home builder um, and you are a cabinet guy. So with that said, you know, and I hate to generalize it, let's get into who you are, what you do, and uh, I want to go on a journey of what brought you here as well. So why don't you introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Yeah, Michael Hartel. I actually grew up in Syracuse, New York and uh, landed in Texas in 2014. So, I actually was a home builder before, getting into only cabinets. And as a home builder, I felt like most cabinet companies weren't doing it the right way. Skipping steps, trying to cut costs. And, uh, you know, at the end of a project, that's when cabinets go in. And when they don't go in the right way, the whole thing comes to a screeching halt. And everyone's upset. People lose money, patience. And it's not fun. So, I taught myself kitchen design in 2016. After having bad experiences with the cheap companies, with the expensive companies, you know, who I thought would do a better job, and they didn't. It was the same stuff, just more expensive. So I taught myself kitchen design in 2016 and just started doing my own projects.
0: Yeah. So So, what brought you to Austin then?
1: Yeah, I came to Austin in, in 2014 from Portland, Oregon, where I had a job as
0: a Ph.D. scientist at Intel. I want to get into that. I want to get into that because I know that that's going to lead a little bit to towards a conversation that we have a little later as well. So what did you do with that? Up in Intel? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was a PhD scientist as a process engineer for nanotechnology. Wow. So basically manufacturing um, things on the nanoscale for the computer industry. So I had a team of engineers underneath me. Uh, The job seems really interesting and cool. Massive amounts of $10 million pieces of equipment lined up You know, just the craziest You know, computer science And technology stuff you've ever seen Very cool at first But when you get a computer And a desk and a boss And they just tell you what to do for 12 hours a day And they take all the creativity away from you It sucks the soul out of you okay. And I didn't like feeling on uh, un- on Monday mornings, like I was enjoying life at all. Yeah. And it would even ruin a Sunday where, you know, I just knew Monday was right around the corner and I'd have to get up and do something I didn't like. So I came to Austin, Texas to work for Samsung, which is our competitor, which is Intel's competitor. Similar job. I felt like a new city, more sunshine, just a, a fresh start would change it for me. Mm-hmm. When I moved here, the same feeling set in pretty quickly, within, within about a year, actually. So within a year, same, you know, not liking waking up on Monday mornings, I actually found real estate investing. I went to a real estate seminar and they said, you can buy a house for this much money and put this much in it and sell it for that much and starting to do the math. And, you know, you do a couple of projects like that a year and it's more than I was making as a, you know, 60 hour a week employee.
0: Plus, you've got an outlet for creativity at that point, which is huge. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know. There is something to sitting behind a desk. The mundane, everyday task can just wear on you, and it—it it feels like um, mentally, at least for myself, I, I, I wouldn't grow. I don't know the last time that I did something like that, and I don't know that I could do something like that. You know, so it's—it's—it makes sense that you came out of that world into something a little bit more creative, or more creative, and gave you the options to do different things. So from there, cabinets. You know, we were talking about. It, it, you had the point that cabinets, they, they can be a holdup to every single job, you know, and, you know, subcontractors in general, right, is a, a builder at the end of the day. I've always told clients I'm an over glorified babysitter at the end of the day. Right. You got to make sure everybody shows up on time, this, that and the other. And it, a lot of that responsibility falls on yourself as well. But I like the fact that you looked at something, found a problem and wanted to create a solution to it, which is something that I think a lot of people don't do when they go into business. And that's something that I kind of look at with uh, any project, any spec home or any, any new venture that we're doing, I go, what's the problem? And let's work backwards. What's the solution to that problem? I want to be part of that solution. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, venturing into the cabinet industry
1: yeah a lot of mistakes a lot of learning really really fast i am not the type of person that wants to make a mistake more than once as soon as you make that mistake you form a new sop form some new process some documented process that will allow for a team member to read a document and never make that same mistake again so really you know starting out it was just me with my truck and cabinets in the back of it uh, bringing him to a job site i had a carpenter that would help me and I was able to learn from him some tricks of the trade and eventually do them on my own, doing my own installations. That method isn't scalable at all. So eventually, you know, hiring hiring uh, designers uh, who are also the salespeople for our company, as well as uh, an operations team that goes through and, and double triple checks everything, communicates with the client,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, just a really good base of carpenters that uh, aren't easy to come by these days. But in the subcontractor business, I feel like if you set them up for success, they're not going anywhere. They're your, uh, they're your favorite, um, you're their favorite person in the world.
0: 100%. So that means
1: job site, materials on site, uh, scheduling correct and accurate where they can plan out, you know, their week or two in advance. Mm-hmm. As a subcontractor, when someone calls you up and say says, you have to come tomorrow and fix this, or can you, I know I delayed your project, but can you come back uh, tomorrow you know you're already out of the next project so I feel like with the subcontractors in general as long as you treat them right uh, and respect them and, and and have them be a part of your family uh, they they're, they're extremely loyal
0: hundred percent hundred percent you know it's kind of funny did to, to go back you said that you did some of the installs yourself years ago I would do my own trim. And I almost couldn't wait until a project got to that point so that I could do that. You know, I'd turn the phone off, stick headphones in, and I I found a, a, a solid piece in being able to do that. You know, just working with tools, working with your hands, things like that. But you get to a point, like you said, that it just doesn't make sense and it's not scalable. If you're doing the work on the job site, you can't find other business. And there's always someone out there that's a hell of a lot better than you could ever be and has additional tricks that can do it in 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 just a minute amount of time in comparison. You know, it would take me a week and a half myself and in someone else to, you know, trim a house where I could hire a crew for fifteen hundred two thousand dollars for some of the smaller houses we were doing. They were in and out in a day, you know, and it was a it, it. it was an ego hit a little bit, you know, but then again, you know, I I understood why I needed it. It was almost therapeutic, which I've kind of replaced with the gym or something like that. But it's, it's good that I'm not the only one that has seen, you know, you get to certain stages and something clicks and you go, this just isn't scalable. So speaking about scalability, I know that you had one location here in Austin, in the Austin area. What happened from there?
1: I had one location in Austin in 2017, it was going well, Mm -hmm. there was a good chunk of Austin that we weren't able to serve because of people not wanting to cross the river here in Austin, it's just people stay north or south, and I had people that wanted to become customers, they just didn't want to travel you know, 40 minutes or an hour and a half in traffic up to Cedar Park Mm -hmm. to come visit us, so I opened up a second location in Oak Hill, uh, southwest Austin, opened that one up in 2021. And staffed it. Uh, it was running itself, and then from there, it. Uh, I'm a. I'm really a business builder. I really enjoy growth, and uh, I feel like if you're not growing, you're dying. You know, there's no stagnation you're either. Growing or dying, getting better or getting worse. And I wanted to continue growing. Mm-hmm. From there, I really had a decision to make. It was, do we open up more corporate stores? You know, what's the next step? You know, what other areas of Central Texas can we serve? And from there, I actually was just doing research about business growth online and came across franchising. So franchising, franchise is a word that everyone knows. But until you dig into the details and like the inner workings, uh, it was actually something new to me. You know, the the whole concept of franchising, the franchisor, which is the the parent company and the franchisee, which is an independent business owner. You know, what does that relationship look like? Um, You know, how do they support each other? things like that. So I I read a lot about it. I hired a firm out of Chicago that was really expensive, but they're literally the best rated franchise development company in the country and paid them to mentor me, to get me set up and to to launch a franchise. So that whole system, it it takes about a a year or so between the legal, you know, operational stuff. It takes about a year to launch. And from there, uh, this year we're opening up stores in Fort Myers, Florida, Huntsville, Alabama, uh, Kansas City, and then we have some coming up in Boulder, Denver, um, and a couple other markets that that's are, are growing. So that's it's going to be fun to, to see other people take the cabinet IQ model that we've built and apply it and uh, use those same processes, the same technology stack that we built,
0: and see it work in their own markets. That's that's tremendous. And in, in in being in a similar field, essentially same field, um, something you and I have talked about is even, even with me, there is not a construction software that I have been able to find that does everything. They all do just enough to piss you off. And that's what I have found, right? You know, you've got builder trend, co-construct this, that, and the other. Some do everything, but a third of what you need and nothing does everything. So when you're expanding and when you're trying to grow like that, software and efficiencies are huge. How did you overcome the lack of, if you would, of software and, and features and steps and things like that to make something like this very successful for a possible franchisee.
1: That was a really, it was really painful for a long time to basically do exactly what you're talking about, um, stacking these technology systems on top of them, on top of each other for different purposes. You know, the, the marketing system, the, um, the autoresponders, the text messaging platforms, you know, QuickBooks is a native uh, accounting software, but a lot of people will use it for um, invoicing and estimating, and it kind of jumbles up your system. You're taking an accounting software and and, um, using it like you're supposed to manage projects. It's not like, it's not used for that at all. Uh, So there's a ton of other ones, you know, a five-star review request system, project management, scheduling, Outlook, you know, you have calendars and emails and it's all in different places so at one point we had seven different pieces of individual software that we paid monthly subscriptions for that had separate logins and it was a little complicated and I said this isn't acceptable and started going on the open market and just calling every company that has CRM in their name and just interviewing them and uh, fortunately I have an awesome COO that takes the time to write out exactly what the requirements are if you ask me to do that it's like a task as a visionary that just bothers me and is not exciting this is like his his realm not mine this is what excites him Um, so he wrote out basically a, a white paper of what the requirements are for our system and our company and we interviewed probably 15 different crms over the course of a couple of months with demos and additional calls after that and what you said is exactly right. There's companies that can do 80% or even 93%, but that 7% is critical to your business. So you'd still have to have another uh, technology you know, on top of that too. So I say all this to say we had to go out and basically start from scratch. We had to go out and find a Salesforce-like platform that just will build you anything. And it took us about a year. We had to architect with the ideal Uh, journey is for a Cabinet IQ customer from the time that they fill out a form online or walk in the store all the way through when they leave us a five-star review request. There's a lot of stuff that happens in between. And it took about a year and it was, you know, over six figures to build something out like that. Um, But now that it's all done, we're humming along. It's like a very cool platform to see, you know, in our industry, in your industry too, in construction in general, I feel like the communication with the client is probably just as important as finishing on time and and on budget. I think those are like the three pillars, great communication on time and on budget. If you can nail those, Mm -hmm. you can make a couple of mistakes in between and still be really, really fine at the end of the day. So the communication is a tough one when you're running a business. Um, I'll give you an example. When someone goes and they have a cabinet quote and they accept it and pay, you know, they used to call up the next day at nine o'clock in the morning and speak to someone that wasn't their sales rep and say, hey, I," and they would say on the phone, I just paid for my cabinets. What's next? You mm-hmm. know, and that happens over and over. And especially at scale, when you have a lot of people paying weekly and you have a lot of people calling up and uh, talking to your staff that doesn't know about that particular project. It's not that they don't care or want to help. They just don't have the information. They don't know necessarily who their designer was or what the next step is. So that's just an easy problem to solve when someone pays an invoice they get an email that's automated from the salesperson that sold them the project and it tells them what's next what they can expect with timelines mm-hmm. and you know over the course of a project you have to do that 6 or 7 times but we don't have phone calls like that anymore we don't have a phone call that says what's next well because so this is not just this is not just for us to save time and, uh, remain focused on our work, but it's also just the client experience that the customer experience.
0: A hundred percent. Cause at some point you have to hire somebody just to answer phones and answer those five questions that, that, that someone may have, you know, so with a system like that, I'm assuming that, uh, as a franchisee, if I was interested in becoming a franchisee, those are things that I would get access to number one, correct. And then number, number two, I would think that that would make the experience a heck of a lot smoother than most franchises that I've actually been uh, – that I've looked into.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, they plug right into the system. They take our exact CRM, and we just duplicate ours as another instance, and they run their business just the same way that we do. So there's a lot of franchises that seem kind of sexy on the outside, and then you sign up, and then they might dump a technology stack of seven different softwares and say you got to sign up for all these It's not Mm -hmm. until you're actually a franchisee that you're like, oh, man, this company seemed like it was really cool from the outside. And now that I'm in it, you know, now I own myself a job and, you know, this is a lot more complicated than I expected. Yeah. So we took an industry that's, you know, relatively complex. It's not like walking in and buying a T-shirt or getting your, you know, outlet in your home fixed like an electrician. Um, Nothing against those businesses, but this is a little bit more complex, which I really enjoy. It's got the uh, design and creative piece to it. It's got the uh, different levels of cabinetry, you know, good, better and best. Mm -hmm. Most people remodel their kitchen once in a lifetime. That's a national statistic. One kitchen in a lifetime is what an average person in America does. So when they go into it, they don't know how much they should spend, what's, what's popular, how they're going to design their kitchen. So I think for us, it's really cool to guide someone through that process. For someone to walk in and say, "Hey, you guys have more five-star reviews than your next seven competitors. We're ready to remodel. We don't know where to start. We don't have a budget. I don't know if this is ten thousand dollars or hundred thousand uh, dollars. But you are our people. Let's go!" You know, and to see our our sales team guide them through that whole process is really exciting for me. Mm-hmm.
0: That's got to be gratifying, for sure. You know, and I I can see where. Your uh, professional career prior to this leans into that mindset of having processes, having, you know, certain ways that things are done just from that engineer mentality. I would I would think that's where it dwells, you know. So that's kind of an incredible story to to hear. With that said, where do you see yourself? I'm going to give you the, the obligatory. Where do you see yourself in five years? You know. Where do you see cabinet iq
1: yeah cabinet iq in five years is going to be the largest household name for residential high-end cabinetry so we'll have probably uh 250 franchisees in about 400 locations open across the country it's not something that goes in the middle of nowhere as far as a a store we have a certain psychographic and demographic of of a customer so it doesn't mean you can just be in the middle of you know in the middle of the desert somewhere so there's, uh, about 300 class A, uh, areas of the country that we want to be in certain markets, you know, the Denver's, the, you know, Austin, Texas, LA, um, they can support about 250 franchisees and, you know, between 400 and 500 uh, territories. Excellent. So at that point we, um, start looking to see what's next, you know, continuing hiring uh, more support staff, um, bringing, bringing in brand presidents and, uh, just feeling really good about changing the way that kitchen modeling is done i feel like we have the ability and scalability at this point through the franchise model to really change how people view how their project should be remodeled
0: yeah no i i wouldn't agree more there's you know we've become and you and i have discussed we've become a society of convenience right number one number two we there's lost arts and lost trades. And unfortunately, you know, the younger generations are not picking trades up. And where there may have been five steps to do something, it sounds like you've come up with a system to take some of those out, which may also help for the lack of actually skilled tradesmen that we have out there as well. Um, to your point, once you nurture those relationships with your subcontractors, they're. They're yours for life. You know, we've got subs that I've used for 20 years, and I, I think of them as family, you know. I've gone to weddings of theirs and, you know, things like that, you know. And that's how I look at those individuals because we couldn't do what we do without those type of relationships. And I've often said I always buy from people, not companies. You know, if someone leaves a plumbing supply shop and goes somewhere else, I'm following them, you know, because everything is relationship-based, which is something, you know – It's almost a lost art in itself, too, you know, so that's how I run my business. And I know that you are very similar in that nature. So it's good to see that others are still pushing that envelope to keep these trades and, you know, some of this lost art from disappearing.
1: Yeah, the law, It is a lost art. That's exactly a good way to put it. I think I just heard today that the average age of a master plumber in Texas is fifty nine years old,
0: and no one's replacing them.
1: And no one, no one's going back in. So that that average age, I thought the last time I checked was fifty seven, and that mm-hmm. wasn't too long ago. That was maybe a couple of years ago. Uh, it's a scary thought. Yeah, plumbers, electricians, carpenters. You know, at, at the end of the day, this causes stress on homeowners where they can't find reliable work, and there's people that come in that aren't qualified at all to even be able to slap a magnet on their truck and call them a carpenter and to just do such a poor job that that homeowner will never forget that experience. And they're going to tell everyone who at that point is just going to be petrified to hire someone. And, and, and you know, at that point, they don't know who to, who to turn to. A hundred percent. They 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 really don't know where to look, how to vet people. Just because you have a, a, a magnet on your truck and a business card isn't, uh, you know, a way to run a business. You have to have the skills and, and the experience.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. And that's the thing too, is what I've tried to talk to the younger generation about. I taught at Austin community college for gosh, almost nine years. So I saw the gamut. I saw young guys, older guys, you know, things of that nature. And one of the things that I tried to impress upon everybody is if you learn a trade that can never be taken from you, no matter what happens, no matter, you know, Anything that you have, clothing, cars, houses, think that can all disappear one day. But a true trade and a true knowledge of a trade that most people don't have is invaluable. And you always have that to fall back on, not to mention the living that you can make being in construction, you know, especially if certain licensed areas, HVAC, plumbing, electrical. I heard the other day that, you know, uh, a, a large plumbing shop was starting people out at sixty-five to seventy thousand dollars to be a plumber, and that's an apprentice because they can't find anybody. So these jobs are extremely lucrative, and the less there is, it's a supply and demand thing. The less there is, the more expensive that's going to be, and it goes back to the blue-collar network. You know, there's there's a lot more very wealthy blue-collar guys out there than you would ever guess. And again, it's because they have a knowledge that others don't. And it's just like other industries. However, this one is depleting fast, you know. So I try to encourage as many people as I can to get into a trade. You know, it doesn't mean, you know, if you go in and and you start digging ditches as a plumber, that you're going to stay there. Within seven years, you can get your master's license, open your own shop, and now you can have a multi-million dollar business that can scale. So I love impressing that on the younger generation and stuff, because this is something that we will constantly need, you will always need food, you will always need, you know, utilities, and they need to work. And if they don't work, you need someone to fix them. It's kind of funny, even what I've always taught my boys is at a younger age, how to change tires, how to change your oil, things like that. I grew up building cars, building motorcycles, you know, racing cars, all sorts of stuff. And I've, I've got that acute knowledge that can't be taken away from me. Do I still change my oil today? No. However, can I? Yeah. You know, and those are things again, that can't be taken away from you. And those are certain knowledges that I think in general that are lost, you know, and it goes back to, I can go down the gamut, but the loss of masculinity in this world, you know, that I think needs to be brought back and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, someone's got to do this and those that can will profit. Well,
1: yeah. Yeah. There's a lot we can unpack there for (laughs) sure. But I feel like, you know, we talk about these trades and being able to replace things in in a home. I mean, if you asked a a guy that just started driving that's 16 years old to go fix a flat tire, I bet you would look at you and say, I don't know how you hand him a car jack and say, you know, show me how to do this he would start trying it's kind of interesting these days i feel like there needs to be some push i feel like it does come from the parents and having good role models it's amazing you do that your kids uh, they're going to end up a lot better off than some that don't have that same same situation it's kind
0: of funny My, my oldest son got his first flat tire we had changed him before and due to the wonderful world of technology when he had to truly engage That learned behavior, that action, he FaceTimed me. Mm -hmm. So I was in a different state, you know, and we're eating dinner and I sat it up at dinner and he sat the phone up and everything. And so we changed the tire over FaceTime, you know, and so technology is awesome. But, you know, even these kids have YouTube to fall back on, right? At the end of the day, you can't figure it out. Find it on YouTube, right? right. But it's it's those that, that take that step to find that information themselves versus just going, I don't know how to do it and walking away. So... But to your point, you know, it goes back to how you raise your kids, you know, and the more you can teach them, the more that they will take on generationally to their kids and their grandkids and things like that, just things that unfortunately have been lost over the years. So, well, I appreciate uh, the chat today. I know that you and I will continue these and this will probably be the first of many. Um, But with that said, how do people find cabinet IQ?
1: Yeah, our website, cabinetiq.com. If you're interested in franchising, you can go to cabinetiq.com slash franchise and we'll reach out to you.
0: Excellent. I appreciate it, brother. It was great talking to you.
1: Thank you.